Open your Bibles to John chapter 3, please. I've had a folder in my right desk drawer for several years. Uh, In my right desk drawer is where all of my my active files, like there's one that says, you know, deacons, and one that says worship schedules, and all that kind of stuff is right there. And then I have a few files that I'm just kind of keeping information in, kind of saving it up for the future. And I've had a file there for years that I've been saving information on uh, illustrations or ideas because there's, there's, a, there's a, an area of sin and righteousness that, that I have started to notice uh, years ago. Uh, I guess I noticed it much more than, than previously. And I begin to realize how critical this area is to the rest of the spiritual life, uh, not only of the individual, but to the church. Um, I've been planning to preach on this area for some time, and, and in God's providence, I've come to that time in, in the Gospel of John, but it is hard to know when is the right time to preach on pride and humility. You know about writing the book on humility. When you write the book, you know you shouldn't, uh, or however that goes. Uh, let me assure you, I have not written the book on humility, but God has. And just as surely as we are, we are uncomfortable when we talk about some topics in church like money or sex, pride and humility are things that God has much to say about and we need to understand his truth. And as we are working our way through the Gospel of John, we have come to one of the, the premier passages of Scripture which instructs us in our attitudes toward ourself and others. Follow as I read John 3. Verse 22 through 36. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. That's John the Baptist. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly, and he speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, he testifies and no one receives his testimony he who has received his testimony has certified that god is true for he whom god has sent speaks the words of god for god does not give the spirit by measure the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand he who believes in the son has everlasting life he who does not Believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John the Baptist is the John that is being spoken of here in this text. 
And John the Baptist had an opportunity for pride. An opportunity for pride. Why is that? Because John had been wildly successful. Wildly successful. I don't know if we fully grasp some of the small words in the Scripture like this. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, to John the Baptist, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. That would be similar to all of Whatcom County coming to church on Sunday morning. I mean, I know of a pastor here in the county who has a vision of having 27,000 people in his church. As it is, his church is pretty big. (laughs) But if everybody came to church, people would say, wow, you're really successful. You're really doing the job. That's what happened to John the Baptist. All, all Jerusalem, all of Judea, all of of this, this county, if you will, Luke 3, 7 says, multitudes came to be baptized by him. Do you know when God uses the word multitudes in the scripture? It's when the word 100 or 200 or 1,000 or 5,000 won't do. They just stop counting and just say multitudes. In Mark 6, 20, uh, we learn that Herod, the governor of, of this area, part of Palestine, knew that John was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when the governor heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. Can you imagine if Christine Gregoire said, Man, I went to ferndalebaptist.com, and I heard that sermon, and I'm going to be sitting on the front row next Sunday morning. You can't imagine it, can you? (laughs) That's what happened to John the Baptist. He was wildly successful. He had an opportunity to be proud. Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says, this is Jesus' words about John, that to that point in history, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Now, that's God's opinion. John was a truly great man with a truly great ministry. There's an opportunity for pride in that, folks. Not only is there an opportunity for pride when you're wildly successful, but he had devoted followers. He had devoted followers. Look back at the text we just read here. Verse, uh, we could start with verse 25. There arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. This probably had to do with, with the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus because the Jews also practice some ritual purifications. And so they're coming and arguing about this. And we know it has something to do with Jesus because immediately they start talking about Jesus. And so it probably has to do with the baptism and all of that. Verse 26, And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you. Do you notice they don't even say the name Jesus? Do you remember when the first Bush was president and we were engaged in a battle with a guy named Saddam Hussein? He said his name, he mispronounced his name wrong on purpose to insult him every time he spoke. He knew the right way to say it, and he said it wrong on purpose. 
Look at these people here. They don't even say the name of Jesus. They say, that guy. That guy who came to you and to whom you, you, gave, you vouched for him. He is baptizing and all are coming to him. John had devoted followers. They were basically coming saying, look, this isn't right. You're the man, John, not him. He's a, he's a Johnny come lately. Um, you know, no doubt they said things like, you started your ministry before he started his ministry. You were here first. This is your turf here, John. Your dad was a priest, and your mom was of the priestly line also, John. This guy, we don't, we're not sure who his dad was. You know, that, you, you know what people say, right, John? John, you've even had the governor at your church services. He had devoted followers, and that creates an opportunity for pride. Well, how does John the Baptist respond? Well, and this is the third aspect of his opportunity for pride. He was fading into the background. Look at verse 26. They say, John, everybody's coming to listen to Jesus. And that is the point at which a person has to decide what's going to happen. He was fading into the background. So how does he respond? What are his reasons for not being proud or for not taking this to himself and puffing himself up with pride? The first one is in verse 27. He understood the source of his abilities. He understood the source of his abilities. Look what he says there. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Do you believe that everything that you have that's worthy of pride comes from God? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who makes you to be different from someone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Have you ever heard the term natural ability? Boy, this person's really talented. They've really got some ability. Where does natural ability come from? Well, let's just use the word itself. It comes from nature. Where does nature come from? God! What do you have that you did not receive? Some of you are intellectual giants. I'm sure. I'm sure some of you are. Some of you are, are, are very sharp. Mentally, you're very sharp. Some of you are much older than me, and you're very sharp. Sharper than I am. Where does that come from? Well, my parents were both really smart. Well, where did they come from? Well, ultimately, they came from Adam and Eve. And where did they come from? God. Well, you don't understand, Pastor Dave. I, I had some natural ability, there's no doubt about it, but not a whole lot. But I had a great teacher. I had a great teacher. Boy, that teacher was the best at throwing a ball. That teacher was the best at singing or playing the guitar or whatever. My, I, had a great, I went to a great college well, where did that come from? And so on. And we go right back to God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. 
and it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Your ability comes from God. Your financial resources come from God. Your job comes from God. Your wisdom comes from God. Everything you have comes from God. One author put it this way, to recognize that all spiritual insight and advance comes from God is to be freed from jealous efforts at comparison. It is to recognize that all Christ-centered and totally committed service, whatever the results, ranks equally with God. And any task done for God is necessarily a great work. Everything we have comes from God. Now, as we would think about pride, certainly we can apply this message to our whole life. I want to try to stay focused within the confines of the ministry, especially the church ministry, because that's kind of the arena that this pride, this temptation to pride is playing out in. It's John as a servant of God being tempted to be proud in relation to Jesus Christ and the greater ministry of Christ. John understood where his gifts came from. The second thing that John understood was this. He understood the relative importance of his ministry. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness. John is talking to his disciples. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him john was called and gifted for a specific ministry if you go back to john chapter 1 just a page back in my bible go back to john 1 and look at verse 6 there was a man sent from god whose name was john john 1 verse 7 now this man came for or came to be a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. John the Baptist knew he had an important ministry, but he knew where it fit into the overall picture. He said, I am not the Christ. Now later here, he, he uses this, this idea of the bride and the bridegroom and the groom. Um, verse 29 of John 3, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. John uses the imagery of a wedding to illustrate his position in God's family. Now, if you were to do a little bit of historical study into Jewish uh, wedding traditions at this time, uh, of course, the way it would work is there would be an engagement, and approximately a year later would be the wedding. And according to the Jewish traditions, the friend of the bridegroom, who today we would normally call the best man, the best man arranged the marriage ceremonies, not the marriage so the, the, bride, the, the, the groom would say to him, okay, uh, you know, in a month from now, let's have this wedding. And so he would arrange the ceremonies. 
He took out the invitations and would hand them out or would go and give people an invitation to come. He presided at the wedding feast as what we would call the master of ceremonies. And he conducted the bride to her husband. He would go to the bride's home and bring her to the husband where there was going to be the wedding itself. It was his special duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would open the door only when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and he recognized it. In other words, he would say, oh, um, you know, he's, he's guarding the bride and here comes the groom. I know it's him. I hear his voice. And so he lets him in and the wedding is consummated. The, the, the marriage is consummated and uh, safely so. Do you understand what John is saying about himself? He's saying, I'm the best man to Jesus Jesus is the groom, and of course we are the bride, and also in the Old Testament, God talked about himself being married to Israel. Next week, as we have the Lord's Supper, we're going to consider this truth of the bridegroom and us as the bride of Christ more fully. But for this week, we understand that John said, look, I have a place. And if you could picture in your mind uh, the weddings we have today, and of course I can picture it because I've, I've been here dozens and dozens of times, and I'm standing here, and the groom is on this side. Do you know, how you, you know what side the groom is on? The groom is always right. <laughs> Somebody said, yeah, until right after the wedding ceremony. <laughs> the groom is here, and the bride is here, and the best man's right here. And John is saying, I'm the best man. I'm not the groom. He's telling his followers. His followers are wanting to make him into the groom. And he's going, no, no, no. I'm the guy who listens to the voice of the bridegroom. And I go, yeah, they're married. And they're, he's excited for them to enter into this relationship. Let me put it in real plain terms. John said, I get to introduce people to Jesus. I get to be there when, when, and say, it, it, you know, in his mind, it's, it's practically the picture. And, and if you go back to the first two chapters of John, John's doing his ministry and here comes Jesus. And he goes, hey, all you people, there he is. There's Jesus. He says, that's my job. I'm not Jesus. I'm the one who gets to introduce people to him. John knew his place in ministry, and he was happy to carry out his God-given ministry until God told him to stop. And you know how God told him to stop? That same governor got mad at John, or his wife did, took his head off. That's how John knew it was time to stop having his ministry. God ended his life. But until then, he, do, you, do you see this text here? He's baptizing and doing his ministry, and Jesus is across the way. It's like the Lutherans up the street. We're having church. They're having church. I mean, John just kept right on going. God didn't tell me to stop yet. But he knew his place, and he was happy to have it. In Romans 12, we read about our place in the body of Christ. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Friend, I got news for you. If you've bought into the common myth in our society, God never identifies low self-esteem as a problem. Look at that. What does he say? 
Don't think too lowly of yourself. No, he doesn't say that. He says, don't think too highly of yourself. Why does God say that? Because he created us human beings and he watched us fall into sin and he knows that pride is a bottom line, root kind of temptation for us. I mean, how many times has somebody else got credit for your work and you went, yes, I am so glad nobody recognized me. No, quite the opposite, isn't it? He says, now don't think too highly of yourself. Now he doesn't say put yourself down as though you have, are of no value and have no contribution to make. What does he say? He ought to think soberly. I'm not a big country music fan, but there's one song that I happened to see while I was clicking through the channels and it's called 10 Feet Tall and Bulletproof. And when is it do you think people think they are 10 feet tall and bulletproof? It's when they are not sober. Because the person who is not sober has a wrong opinion of themselves. They try to eat things that are too big for their throat. They try to get in fights with people who they think they can, you know, on and on and on. You know. I never went in the tavern until I became a pastor, you know. Yeah, when I became a firefighter, I started going into taverns, and I realized that people do not think right when they are not sober. And that's, it's the word for sobriety that he's using there. And he says, look, don't be like a drunken person who, who makes a fool out of themselves. See, that's what the proud person does, you know. He says, don't think too highly, but think soberly. Think it through, in other words. What, what is the truth upon which your self-opinion should be based? And he goes on, he says, look, God has given everyone a measure of faith. In other words, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, God gave you something with, with which you could serve him. For we have many members, many individual people in one body of Christ, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts, that goes back and correlates with that, that phrase, measure of faith. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. There is nothing righteous about a Christian who has been gifted by God and who sits on their hands or hides their light under a bushel and essentially says, oh no, I can't do it, I can't do it. In fact, that's often pride itself because you're waiting for somebody to come along and, oh, come on, come on, we need you desperately. Oh, well, I guess, you know, I can come and save the world. Okay, whatever you need. <laughs> he just says, look, Christian, take a look at your life and honestly, number one, say, God gave me this gift. He gets the glory, he gets the credit, not me. God gave me this gift. And then, number two, when somebody comes along and says, can you do the announcements? You say, yeah, I can do that. Can you lead this song? Yeah, I can do that. You don't have to aw shucks and kick the dirt and, you know. It's not arrogant to say, yes, I can do that because in your heart you're saying, God has prepared me for this, not me. God has prepared me. John knew his gift from God. Now, could I, could I turn this picture just one more little time and say this? Remember how I said John's place was to introduce people to Jesus? 
Do you know what the cumulative effect of the body of Christ with every individual part doing their God-given part, do you know what the cumulative effect is? We get to introduce people to Jesus. We get to do the same thing John did. We're, We're like that best man. Hey, this is my place, and I'm happy to do it. And if in that if in that part I, I, I play this part or that part or the other part, it doesn't matter because we are leading people to Jesus. It's not an individual sport, it's a team sport. This is a guy named Doug Peterson. He used to be a professional football player, he was a quarterback, and I think he's Rod's cousin, Rod Brudwick's cousin. So that would make him Marianne's cousin-in-law. And uh, (laughs) he was a professional football player until just recently. Now I understand he's a high school football coach or something like that. And I read, they interviewed him because he played on Mike Holmgren's uh, um, World Series football teams. uh, World Series, yeah, I'm a big football fan. Um, (laughs) Super Bowl teams in 1988 and 1989, and I believe they, they only won the Super Bowl once of those two years, right, right. Now, do you know what his position was on the team? Backup quarterback. Did he get, Rod, do you know if he got to play in the Super Bowl? No, he didn't get to play in the Super Bowl. But do you know what he got to say when the game was over? We won And he got a Super Bowl ring just like everybody else who was on the field because he played a part in them winning. Obviously, most of you have never heard of him unless you happen to live in Ferndale and know him growing up. But in terms of the football world, you know, it's not Joe Montana or Brett Favre or Matt Hasselbeck, but he's wearing a Super Bowl ring because he was part of the team. Now, do you suppose he was ever tempted to think, I am just never going to get to that top spot, so I just think I'll quit. I I bet he was. Do you think he'd have been happy if he quit before they won the Super Bowl? Hey folks, this is a team sport we're engaged in. Some people have a more visible part of that team sport. Some people have a less visible part. Some of you are absolutely critical cogs in this machinery. Some of you perhaps feel like you're not so critical and so important. Do you know what? This is a team sport. When somebody gets baptized here, you need to be sitting out there going, praise God, our church discipled this person when somebody joins the church you need to say praise god our church is of such a such a quality of ministry that these people want to join our church one of the phrases that should go out of your language is your church when you're talking about this place in which you're sitting. Don't ever talk to me about your church and point the finger this way, because it ain't mine. It's ours. And John the Baptist knew that. And he said, it doesn't matter that more people are going to him than me. He said, in fact, that's the point. 
It's not about me. One author that I read this week said this, we will certainly do more in the service of God and find life more rewarding if we do use our spiritual gifts to the full rather than spending our time complaining that we do not have such and such a gift. In other words, you can, you can be busy about God's work and let the credit go to God and whoever else and not worry about it, or you can just whine and complain that you don't have a gift or you don't have a position. Which one is going to bring more people to Jesus? John understood the source of his abilities. He understood the relative importance of his ministry. And he understood the supreme position of Christ. And this little verse that is so famous to us, John 30, obviously, now if you don't know it, folks, you know the verse markings, the verse 28, 29, 30, those little numbers were put in by authors in fairly recent years just to help us find the verses. But you can tell that when they put it in, they looked at that phrase and they go, oh, that is such an important phrase. It has to stand alone as a verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. John understood the supreme position of Christ. What does that mean? It means people need to see Jesus, not me. People need to see Jesus, not me. I knew a musician once who complained that her voice wasn't being properly amplified. So she bought her own powerful and expensive microphone and insisted that it be used. Now there's a reason why her voice wasn't being amplified a lot. Do you really see this as a team sport in which Jesus is the most important person? You have succeeded most greatly when people see Jesus, not you. That, uh, I, I can't tell you how much I love our musicians for that very point. I, never. I'm, I've been here four years and I've never had one of them say, you never let me do this, or you never let me do that, or how come? I, I am not exaggerating when I say they are the most wonderful group of people spiritually in terms of the ministry. Now, I, they're not perfect. I know that. But, but, but uh, you know, we, we, they are, their eye is on the ball, which is ministry to you for God. And it needs to be that way everywhere in our church. Sometimes we get jealous for a certain ministry or a certain position and we need to step back and say, wait a minute, the only thing that I should be jealous for is for the occurrence of ministry. In other words, if, if you were to come into our church fresh and have never been here before and you look it all over for a few weeks or months and pretty soon the Lord says, says Dave, do you, do you see that? That needs to be done. And so you say, you know, you come to the pastor and you say, Brother Pastor, I just think this needs to be done. Could I work on that? That's being jealous for ministry. The contrast is people who say, I want to be there. I want to be this. I'm not doing, and so on. And, and we have to say, wait a minute, what are you jealous for? John the Baptist said, man, I'm just doing my job and I'm just thrilled that people are coming to Jesus. In fact, what has to happen is people have to forget about me. 
That's what really has to happen. People need to see Jesus, not me. Uh, When I've trained our sound uh, engineers, and also I've I've done this in many other churches where I'll go and consult on their sound system, I'll say, you know what? If you do a perfect job, nobody will ever compliment you. You know why? Because you don't notice the sound system until it makes a big old noise like it did while I was praying this morning. And then you go, what in the world? What's going on with that thing? Fix that thing. What's wrong with you guys? Okay. The truth is, our guys do a great job week in and week out. We hardly ever have a feedback or we hardly ever have a problem except the wonderful radio station in which our program is on Sunday mornings finds its way into church once in a while. But you see, if you really do a great job, people don't notice you. They notice God. That is our goal. John understood the supreme position of Christ, that people need to see Jesus, not me. And then he he said this, Jesus is the only perfect one that we should be worshiping. Now I know this goes without saying. This is like, well, duh. But look what he says here in verse 31. First of all, in verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now he who comes from above is above all. Well, of course, But he goes on to say it a couple of different ways. He who is of the earth, John's talking about himself, he who is of the earth is earthly, and he speaks of the earth, but he who comes from heaven, Jesus, is above all. He's saying, look, it's only only common sense. He's telling these followers, he's from heaven. Of course we should be following him. We shouldn't be following any human person. Verse 31 tells us, That the existence of Jesus, his heavenly existence, makes him superior. Verse 32 tells us his experience makes him superior. What he has seen and heard, he testifies. He said Jesus came from heaven and he testifies of what he saw in heaven, but people on earth are not receiving that testimony. In verse 34, we find out that his empowerment makes him superior. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God does not give him the spirit by measure. What he's saying is this. Look, Jesus came from heaven, and he has the full-blown ministry of the Holy Spirit in him like no other person has. That is a superior power. Verse 35 says his exaltation makes him superior. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand why should we worship christ alone why should we give all of our praise to him and not put it in ourselves? because god has put everything into his hands in other, in other words all authority all power god has put it all into the hands of jesus now here's the question that i think is probably very very critical to our thinking today what does the superiority of jesus have to do with my humility well this is what it has to do humility is not the product of direct cultivation rather it is a byproduct the more i try to be humble the less i shall attain unto humility but if i am truly occupied with that one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I am constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then 
I shall be changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's a quote from, uh, from Pink. Another author says this, humility is not so much the result of vigorous self-abasement as it is the result of raising Christ to his proper place. He must increase even if it means I must decrease. Another author says this, if we have our minds on other people even a little bit, we will always find room for pride. For no matter how bad we are or how poorly we are doing, we will always be able to find someone who does things worse and be proud that we are better. On the other hand, if we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will have our attention riveted on one who is so infinitely above us that we will consider ourselves at best only his unprofitable servants. Isn't that interesting? I think it's a, it's a dead-on analysis. You can't make yourself humble so much as you can get focused on Christ so strongly that you stop thinking about yourself. You're always thinking, wow, look what God did. Wow, look what Jesus did. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. You're thinking that way. You're not thinking, yeah. Guess I'd show that one. You're thinking, wow, look what God did. He must increase. I must decrease. What is God's exhortation to humility here? This, this final, the John, or I should say John's final exhortation to humility Look at, look at verse 36. It's interesting how this passage ends. He comes right back to faith in Christ. And he says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I, 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 spoke, to a, I spoke to a pastor recently who said, every week he preaches a simple gospel message. <sighs> His church is empty because you're not feeding the saints. But what is so sad to me about that is I think the whole Bible is imminently evangelistic. I think every truth that means something to us as Christians reaches out to the unbeliever like this one. If Jesus is the king of the world, if Jesus is has everything from God put into his hands, doesn't it make sense that you need to put your faith in him? And that's how John wraps up his little, his little lecture here on humility, if I could put it that way. He says, the Father has put all things into his hands, verse 35, and now you need to believe in him. That is, if you will, it's the, it's the moral on the story. Remember how the story started out? John's disciples came to him and said, John, you won't believe it. Everybody's going to listen to Jesus. And so John says, well, guys, here's the deal. Da, 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 da. And you need to believe in Jesus. That's what happens here. The most important act of humility is faith in Christ for salvation. Let me put it another way. The greatest hurdle 
to you coming to Christ is your pride. You know why? Because if you're going to come to Christ, you're going to have to admit you're a sinner. And like the quote that I just read, we like to look around ourselves and say, well, you know, I'm no Ted Bundy, you know. I mean, I haven't killed a whole bunch of people. And in fact, you know, I'm, I'm pretty nice to my wife, right, dear? All right, yeah, pretty nice to my wife. And, and, you know, I work every day. I pay my taxes. I support our military in Iraq. You know, I'm a pretty decent fella. Well, thank the Lord. It's better than having you out shooting people. But you know what? Are you that great compared to Jesus? When you hold yourself up next to Jesus, do you come out pretty good? The greatest hurdle in coming to Christ is your pride. The greatest hurdle in living your life for Christ, Christian, is your pride. You know why? Because you will not get to choose how your life goes. In fact, if you didn't know it, you're not getting to choose already. (laughs) Because God is the king of the world and he is ordering up things around you. And the real problem is if you will pridefully not submit to him, then you will be frustrated and you will have difficulty and you will complain against God. But if you would just humbly say, you know what, God, I'm not qualified to run my life. I give it all to you. I lay down. I bow the knee. That's when your righteous life begins with Christ. That's when your peace begins with God. Oh, friends. It's hard. It's hard to shoot your pride in the heart. But it's a good thing. In that file on pride, I found this enlightening little story, a true story about a boy He was reflecting back on his early life, and he wanted to play Little League. And of course, he didn't want to just play in the outfield. He wanted to pitch. And so they're having this Little League tryouts and this meeting, and he says, I fought my way to the front of the crowd, and then I heard that question I had been waiting for, and the coach says, Who'd like to pitch? And he was jumping and raising his hand. And he was just so crazy with pride and the desire to pitch that he poked the coach right in the eye and they had to take him to the emergency room. And he said, I never went back. The author of the article goes on to say, that's what happens when we enter the arena of self-promotion we hurt others and we miss opportunities to use our gifts legitimately god has a place for you without doubt it takes more grace than i can tell to play the second fiddle well friends let's keep our eyes on christ and on his work and let's keep it off of ourselves heavenly father (sighs) preachers are especially susceptible to the sin of pride i know so because you wrote it in first timothy 3 and i ask that you help me to keep my eyes on jesus And I ask that you help all of us
to keep our eyes on Jesus and keep our eye on the ball of making disciples and of playing together and just rejoicing together in the success of every part of the ministry. Father, we know that you have promised to lift us up in due time if we will humble ourselves under your hand. And so we do that today. And we say, you lift us up when you know it needs to be done. And we will take joy in your praise, not the praise of our fellows, but in that real praise that comes from you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.